Uncovering History, a podcast of the OI. Welcome to the OI podcast. I'm your host, Steve Townsend, and I am here this week talking with Robert K. Rittner, the Rowe Professor of Egyptology and Foyskalf, the head of the research archives. We're doing this podcast from home, so things are a little bit uh, downplayed for this special edition. Um, we're going to be talking about a, a really interesting piece of news that spread internationally. It's been getting a lot of media coverage, uh, and uh, Robert and Foy's work at the OI has been at the center of this. In our own age of anxiety, it's interesting to see a document that also refers to anxiety of a different kind, and a kind that's perhaps uh, a little more comforting for people to look at because it gives us not only a sense of understanding of an earlier age, we can actually sympathize with and, and understand the emotions behind this document. It provides a certain amount of humor uh, when one looks at it from our modern perspective. It's interesting to see that this one story that we did in a academic journal that would have been seemingly fairly obscure was picked up by Live Science with a very thorough, nice report on what our work did. And that then generated a whole series of additional reports, now five that I have found in the United States and England and in Spain, uh, that not only synopsize the story, glamorize it, and with varying different titles can uh, make it sound a little more racy, although that's pretty much the nature of the text, but it's also interesting to see that, for example, the Daily Mail text, it's been shared 1,100 times. If you look at a, a text done by the same news service a number of years ago in, 19, in the 1990s, also on a love spell, it only generated a small fraction of that, only a couple of hundred shares. So general interest in topics like this is greater. Robert, can you tell us uh, a, a little bit about this object in FOI? Like, what is, uh, what, what is the, the physical thing? You have a papyrus that's been badly damaged, but, but still survives with enough context with both the text and an illustration to give us an example of a spell designed to procure sexual favors from a woman's perspective, which is an unusual phenomenon in ancient Egypt where we have surviving magical papyri for love, usually composed by or commissioned by a man for a woman. This goes the other way around. It was acquired by the University of Michigan in 1924 as part of a large group of papyri from the Fayum in Egypt. So we don't, we don't know where the specific find spot was, but from internal evidence, we can imagine that it was folded, which would account for some of the cracks that one can see running horizontally through the papyrus and was inserted into a tomb, actually on a, the body of a mummy, mm -hmm. whose spirit is invoked in the inscription to rise up from the dead and essentially torture 
mentally and physically a man until he has sex with a specific woman. Wow. <laughs> well, what's, what's interesting about some of the text on this is, so the Fayum provenience, assigning it to an origin in the Fayum really comes from um, the purchase history. Um, so, and, and that's a little bit uncertain because when you look at the um, documents at the University of Michigan, it's actually not entirely clear which papyrus this is mentioned in the accession records. Um, so th they were purchasing sort of big groups of papyri altogether, um, largely from the Fayum, but not only from the Fayum. This does seem to be one of those. There's, a, there's an interesting reference in some of this documentation that suggests this is actually the papyrus they're referring to. So we think it's from the Fayum. Also, there's spellings in the demotic text itself that suggest um, a Fayum dialect. So what's interesting about um, its connection to other demotic magical texts and papyri is that there's a number of passages that parallel exactly word for word other passages in demotic magical spells that we know from Thebes, much further in the south, the sort of um, at this period in time, we're talking roughly, let's say, first and second century AD when we think this spell was written down and we're basing that date um, largely on sort of two factors. One, the paleography, so the, the form of the script, the demotic script on it, and also the larger corpus of demotic magical papyri that we have that all date from around this period and, and maybe even slightly later. Um, and these parallels between this Fayum demotic magical papyrus and these Theban ones suggest, um, I mean, A, a large, probably sort of um, uh, oral tradition of reciting these spells and passing them around orally, but also this textual tradition because some of these passages are, are as I said, almost word for word um, identical between um, text in, in our papyrus that we're working on. And just to give you an example on the screen, one of these other magical handbooks, this one, a papyrus in the Louvre that our colleague, uh, Janet Johnson at the Oriental Institute had edited um, you know, over 25 years ago. Uh, and, and just to, to point out one of the interesting things about the one that we're working on is it's a spell laid out as Robert was saying, specifically for an individual to use Whereas a lot of our other um, magical papyri that are most famous and well-known uh, are magical handbooks. They're sort of collections of spells that don't have individual names in them. Instead of the individual's names who would use the spell, it just actually says so-and-so. So those were supposed to be used by a practitioner as a handbook. And it's possible that somebody making the papyrus for Michigan that we're working on could have used such a handbook, and that's where these parallels come from between the Theban and the Fayum corpus that we see here. It's been almost certainly that such handbooks were used, and that has all sorts of interesting sociological implications as well, because it tells us that a, a scholar wrote this, someone who had access to books, which was itself restricted in the Roman period, and with reading being a very restricted activity. Most women would not have been able to read and write, so it's unlikely that the woman who purchased this spell was the scribe, which means that she had to spend uh, economic resources in order to have this done. It wouldn't have necessarily been prohibitively expensive, obviously she could do it, but it necessarily shows you that it was worth her effort to spend money 
to have this done with a professional writer who had access to books who actually researched these and quotes from several different collections, which means it's a professional job. Mm -hmm. One would have liked the handwriting to be a little clearer, but it probably <laughs> reflects the regional style uh, of the Fayum, which is, uh, it has its own distinctive handwriting features. Can I ask uh, about that handwriting? It, what what language uh, is it in? Again, um, if you could explain a little bit of, for those who don't know, a lot of times we think of um, those of us outside uh, research and uh, and Egyptology think of hieroglyphics a lot, uh, which is not the case with this. This is the last phase of Egyptian cursive writing. It derives ultimately from hieroglyphs. It's the Egyptian language, but at its next to last developmental stage, demotic, which just is a Greek word, which means popular, uh, applied to this script and to the, the language of the period. This is a phase of the language that began around 600 BCE and would continue in, until the Roman period as now, and was at this point developing into Coptic, the Christian era, Egyptian language phase that is written largely with Greek alphabetic script elements and some signs left over from Demotic. Uh, Demotic is a very cursive form of hieroglyphs that is essentially the equivalent of shorthand, where the script is so reduced and simplified that you can't actually see easily any of the underlying hieroglyphs from which it derived. What, what would it be like to, to, go to, a, to go to a scribe to have this done? This scribe would almost certainly be a, be a priest, part of the priestly caste, because only such individuals would have access to the religious books that had magical spells. Magical ritual spells were part of the, the broader religious categories of ancient Egyptian writings. They were not something that was done only by people on the margins. A, actual priests would be doing spells for the benefit of the general populace. You'd have to go to a priest to have this done. Mm -hmm. uh, conversely, if you knew that someone was cursing you, you would have to go to a priest to have it removed. So it's uh, economically viable for the, for the priestly class. Reading and writing is restricted because of the complexity of the script. If you were someone in the administration, uh, in the temples, you had to learn to, le to read and write. In the Roman period, the Egyptian language was no longer acceptable by the state for official documents of state. So the Roman civil administration wouldn't take anything that was written in Demotic. However, the Egyptian temples were still using it. So internal temple documents among Egyptians would all be written in Demotic still. The picture that I'm, I'm seeing in my mind here is this woman who, you know, it, it's not enough to simply uh, you want this spell want this spell to be cast she's going to go and she's going to spend money on it is this is this something that people did a lot well the use of magical spells is extremely common the oh. use of love magic quote unquote compulsive spells 
is more restricted. And there are only a few examples that have been found from pre-Roman times. This led to the assumption that Egyptians hardly used this practice and that this was not something that priests would have gathered and perhaps love magic was just done ad hoc. Uh, someone would make up something on the spur of the moment if they felt the need. That's no longer true. Uh, our earliest example of, a, of love magic had been an ostracon of New Kingdom date from Daryl Medina, which invokes the seven goddesses of fate, the seven Hathors, to compel a woman to come after a man like a maidservant after her children, like an uh, uh, ox after grass. So essentially compelling this woman to, to run after his footsteps. Um, but this was considered to be an isolated lone event until a papyrus that's been sitting in our collections for a very long time in the British Museum. This is a papyrus that was found from a magician's hoard, a collection of documents and other objects in a chest that was buried in a tomb underneath what is now the Ramesseum. This dated from the Middle Kingdom, Dynasty 12 or 13, and it included a spell which says, my desire is for you, my heart is for you, as thy desire of Horus for his eye, as Seth for his testicles, of Hathor for her tresses. Uh, a flame is in my desire, a flame is in my heart. Uh, I am come to you, etc., etc., etc. It's a fragmentary text. It was so badly broken up that it hadn't been thoroughly analyzed previously but it was done just a few years ago, uh, and we now have an example of an early um, magical spell that's for the purposes of love. So the idea is to, make, is to give him what is effectively love sickness, so that he can do nothing except think about her, seek after her, follow after her, not now like an ox after grass, but like the, the stars moving in a circular fashion round around the midheaven, unwearyingly, the circumpolar stars, twisted and helpless, even making a broken reference to something about taking away the bread, perhaps the bread of his mouth. He can basically not eat. He can't think about doing anything except be obsessed with her. Yeah, so this, this section of the spell, uh, I can just you know, sort of read it back to you. Um, have it make the circuits of the four-leg constellation opposite the Sal constellation uh, until you cause that he make the movements of the nighttime until he seeks Talum away. So basically all this is, is suggesting is for um, Kephalos to wander ceaselessly until uh, his desire, right, until this fever is sated by joining up um, with um, Talromawe. And this image here, just again, this is from the Northern Hemisphere. This is not from Egypt. This is just a graphic to help you visualize. The constellations that we're, they're referring to, so when we're talking about the four-leg constellation, that's actually a reference to what we call the Big Dipper. So you see that here uh, in the illustration. And the interesting part of that is that um, those constellations never dip below the horizon. So they're always visible in the night sky, which is representative of 
Kephalos's uh, ceaseless wandering, right? His incessant lusting after uh, uh, the practitioner of the spell Taromawe. I see, I see. It's, it, it's interesting because it's not a, I want him to love me. It's I want our male and female parts to unite. <laughs> Very specific lust. Uh, I think that that's one of the things that makes us so interesting is you don't, you know, I think sometimes when we think about the past, we think of it in really romantic terms. And this is very, you know, very primal, what she wants. Well, well just to um, give you an example of the opposite of that. So our, our and, and you're right, some of these um, texts can be quite explicit. Um, and ours, in fact, is sort of tame by comparison to some of them. So our spell that we're working on is this spell to cause the lust in a man after a woman. But we also have examples like this Coptic text on paper that's in the Oriental Institute that is actually basically the opposite of that. This is a spell to cause impotence in an <laughs> unwanted suitor. So this is a woman writing, commissioning a spell in very the same way, uh, same way she would have gone to uh, a practitioner to write the spell out. She would have paid them. Uh, and then this spell was intended to actually make this unwanted suitor impotent. So I can just give you a, a little sort of um, taste of what this sounds like. So the beginning of this starts out with a, a sort of invocation of binding. So, oh, binding of the sky, binding of the earth, binding of the air, binding of the firmament, binding of the Pleiades, binding of the sun, binding of the moon, binding of the birds, binding of the ring of the father. Now here's what might be interesting uh, to some people, binding with which Jesus Christ was upon the wood of the cross, binding the seven words which Ilseus spoke over the heads of the holy ones, and then we get some magical names, and then the, the main part of the, the impotent spell, may that binding be upon the male organ of Pharaoh and his flesh. May you dry it up like wood, make it like a rag upon the manure pile. And then it actually gets much more explicit. I will leave that out. People can come out, uh, go and look that up. But it basically says that he is not going to have any sort of sexual power and to keep him away from the person uh, who is commissioning that spell. So yeah, these can be very explicit uh, and less than romantic, you might say. The, the metaphors are great, like a rag on the manure pile. <laughs> the language is wonderful. But joining his male anatomy to her female anatomy. The closest parallel to that is not in Demotic, it's in Greek. It's a magical papyrus, PGM number, Papyri Greci Magikai number four, uh, a papyrus that has texts in it both in Demotic and Greek, but the Greek text is actually parallel to what we've got, which shows you that the, the scribes who are doing this are bilingual. And the texts that they're looking at are in two different languages. And you can jump from the Egyptian native language to the same phraseology, word for word, just translated into Greek. It's an interesting cultural fusion in the Roman period at a time when the cultures are really being kept apart officially by government edicts. In Roman Egypt, Egyptians are second-class citizens. Egyptian language is not valued as a legal language. You, are, you cannot be a citizen of Rome 
if you are Egyptian, you have to be a farmer. The number of priests in Egypt is restricted because priests are tax-free to the state and the state doesn't want people not paying taxes. Egypt provided the economic basis for Rome because Rome couldn't feed itself. So Rome wanted all Egyptians to be on the farm growing food for Rome. They didn't want anybody reading or writing uh, and acting as tax-free bureaucrats if they could avoid it. You had to get permission from the Roman state to become a priest. You had to be certified. So the man who wrote this document had to have been approved by the Roman state or he wouldn't have the skills to do what he's doing. And he, they were limited in number because he got, a tax, he got a tax break, which the state didn't like. So here he is performing an action, the scribe, that's technically illegal from the point of view of Roman state. It's magic and therefore bad, potentially threatening to the state. And the state is supporting him because they're giving him a tax break to perform an occupation that they're suspicious of in the, in, to begin with because it's an Egyptian religious action. And that's potentially threatening to Roman religious ideas and the Roman state and, and imperial authority. So this, is, this crosses boundaries on multiple levels. And a further one is that the, the man that uh, Tar, the, the, the woman of woe is seeking has a Greek name. She has an Egyptian name. Her mother has an Egyptian name. Her desired target has a Greek name and his mother has a Greek name. Now, in the Roman period, Egyptians do begin to adopt Greek names. You can still be ethnically Egyptian and have a Greek name. But it's striking that both the, the, the woman's names and her parents are, are Egyptian and his are Greek. So what we could have here, in addition to all the other cross-cultural issues, is she could be lusting after an ethnic Greek man. Uh, which is also interesting. It wouldn't be illegal, but it would be out of the norm. Can you, can you remind me of the date on, uh, that we're talking first, about? First to second century AD. Okay. This is still a period where um, citizenship in the Roman Empire actually meant something, and it was denied to all Egyptians. When, when Octavian conquered Egypt, he made a ruling that people who were of mixed marriage, Greek and Egyptian, can't classed as Egyptians. So people who had been citizens of, of city-states in Egypt under the Ptolemies, who had Greek fathers and Egyptian mothers, which was pretty common, uh, those had, they had been able to be Greeks, quote unquote under the Ptolemaic period. When Rome took over, they were all banished out of the Greek category and pushed into the Egyptian category. Mm -hmm. What that meant is that they had to pay poll taxes. They couldn't be citizens officially in the Roman Empire and all sorts of other restrictions. They couldn't serve in the military if you were a quote unquote Egyptian as opposed to a Greek. So there was an official 
class distinction imposed by the Roman state that had not been there previously. Foy, can you read us the text of this spell? The article that we were working on that produced this recent um, media um, is really preliminary. We didn't offer a full edition and translation of the, the text there. We're going to do that in a future article. Um, so this is um, some pieces of this that can, can sort of give you a flavor of what you find in this spell. So this is from the beginning of the spell. Awake, O noble spirit of the man of the necropolis, so that you may go to every place, so that you may cause Cephalus, whom Apollonia bore, love, and this love word is the word that's determined with the phallus the determinative that Robert was talking about. So really this is about lusting after Taromawe, whom Ta seed bore, and that he be twisted from his front to his back. Give to him anxiety, and the word here for anxiety is really a burning, a fever, at midday, evening, and at all time, while his male organs are after her female organs. Have him make the circuits of the four-leg constellation opposite the Sal constellation until you cause that he make the movements of the nighttime until he seeks Taroma Wei, whom Tasi bore, there being no other woman at all, before I cast the curse upon you today. And we should say too that the large middle section of the papyrus, uh, looking at the picture here, you can see it's very uh, damaged and fragmentary, but there's a whole section here where this terminology, this, this term that we're translating curse, uh, is heavily prominent throughout in a number of uh, passages where the practitioner, the reciter of this spell is calling on a number of divine entities to literally compel this, this term uh, that we're translating curse. It really is, means like a divine compulsion to put this compulsion into Kephalos to constantly seek after Taroma way. And this is just the very end of the spell, the last couple of lines where again, talking to the, the, the ghost of the necropolis, raise yourself against Kephalos whom Apollonia bore, give his heart to Tauroma way. So very similar to the earlier Middle Kingdom terminology that Robert was mentioning, uh, to Tauroma way whom Tasi bore, hasten, hasten, hurry, hurry, before I have said the words or repeated them. And this little bit at the end is very common in both, then this is kind of interesting from a multicultural perspective, this hurry, hurry, hasten, hasten, you find this in Greek, Coptic, Demotic, uh, all of these different kinds of magical texts at the end to sort of, again, effectuate to make the spell sort of work. So, so she, goes, she goes to this priest and she, has, she wants this guy so bad that she has this spell, she pays, she pays for it. She doesn't, you know, just say a prayer on her doorstep. She goes out, pays somebody to do this, and then she, she, my understanding that she takes this and puts it in a tomb in order to enlist the aid of a ghost. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so you can, so you know, just to repeat a little bit what Robert said, you can see on the papyrus itself, it has been folded up. And so it was probably stuck somewhere. And as Robert said, it's probably stuck in a tomb. And that first line calls out to this ghost of the mummy, let's say in the tomb, to perform this really this possession. Mm -hmm. So we believe that the you know the that the the dead are you know linger around in ancient Egypt and and can do these things for us if properly motivated or compelled. The use of the dead for these kinds of purposes uh, in magical spells it goes all the way back to the Old Kingdom. 
It's used in ritual texts of so-called execration texts by the state where you wish to destroy the enemies of Egypt. You put down their names on little clay figurines that are like Egyptian voodoo dolls. And these are then ritually smashed or otherwise tortured, set on fire, uh, and then deposited in an older tomb, usually of a tomb where no tomb offerings are being given any longer to the deceased, so that you have a, a, a mummy inside who is hungry for offerings and is angry for not having received the offerings. And so by giving him these little dolls with the images of the enemies of the state, you're, the state is basically telling the spirit to attack them, that here is your prey, here are your offerings, take these. And this idea that was actually fostered by the chancellery, because we have these, these little names are updated regularly on figures, that so we know that uh, the state was keeping track of, of regional rulers, and when those rulers would change, the names on the voodoo dolls would change. And so those are going into tombs for the state so that the dead will torture the enemy here. Those are adapted in time for private concerns, no longer by the state. And so you can put your own personal enemies' names on dolls and, and put them into tombs to curse. And the range of curses can be totally destructive. You bring about illness, disease, or death. Or in these cases that we're talking about now with the Roman text, the disease is love sickness, not a, a physical disease leading to death, but an emotional disease leading, leading to lust, compulsion, and uh, sexual favors here. Parallel texts that describe the depositing of spells with a mummy talk about it being put in the mouth of the mummy. We have statements about that both in Greek and Demotic. So ideally, if, if the mummy were accessible, and a slit could be made, or if the mouth were open, you would simply drop it into the mouth so that you were basically putting the words you wanted into the mummy's mouth so he would speak them and do them and receive them. Mm. His tomb then essentially becomes, his coffin becomes essentially a mailbox. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's, that's a, a great image. But on this, Papyrus, I see, we're talking about the dead, and I see this illustration here that I understand is Anubis with a bow and arrow. Anubis is invoked directly in the papyrus. You have to wait to get to line 18 until his name actually appears. And he's asked to rise up and to shoot after Cephalus. And we see that depicted at the bottom of the text with Anubis with an extremely large arrow shown actually entering into the breast at the heart of Cephalus, who is shown nude with overemphasized genitals, since that's actually the point of the text. And is, those are mentioned directly uh, up above, where she's asking that her, that her organs be joined with his. The reason for Anubis 
here is not only that is he the supervisor of the necropolis, as in embalmer deity, he is also in the underworld, a guardian of doors, gateways, and a compelling figure. We can see him as the uh, steward at the gateway that go, who goes into the, to the court of Osiris. So he brings the dead souls in and out of court. And there he wields weapons, batons, and acts as a defensive and protective figure. We have a variety of images of him specifically with bow and arrow, and Foy and I have gathered a large number of those, largely in amuletic form, which could have been worn around the neck, showing him with a bow and often a quiver, shooting arrows against demonic forces, or to compel forces to do something. And our article for Göttingen Mitzellen included quite a number of, of those, uh, both sitting on a throne, standing, shooting, teaching the king how to shoot an arrow. We have a variety of uh, images of that. And the, the, the arrow shooting, is something that protective spirits do so that it's not simply Anubis, it's also a, a, a ritual act done by Seth, by underworld figures, uh, and even by uh, Ammon and the god Shed, a protective deity. Hmm. So, so, so Steve, the, the sort of, just to, to follow up on that, the, the image on the papyrus is essentially showing you the transmission, right? It's a graphic depiction of the transmission of the sickness uh, from Anubis, who of course is in charge of the necropolis, through this ghost who's going to be possessing uh, and haunting uh, Cephalus until he lusts after uh, Tauroma way. And, and we didn't mention earlier, but if our reading of, of the name is correct, it's actually interesting as well, because the, the woman's name seems to be a euphemism that means the woman of woe. So, um, whether this is her real name or a euphemism for a woman who's pining for the, the love and lust of this other man is uncertain. But essentially what you have here is, is a graphic depiction of the transmission of this sickness. And, and it was a big part of our preliminary article to trace this imagery um, and not, not just in these amuletic forms, but also in the text. And we spend some time also focusing on things like uh, the goddess Sakhmet and her seven arrows and uh, how they transmit sickness as well. So to go back to what Robert was saying sort of at the beginning, this is really um, uh, a love sickness spell to, uh, to induce love fever, uh, not just um, uh, romantic love. Um, I don't know that we've talked at all about the different roles that you, that you both had on it. Do, do you wanna talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, what um, what most people um, who are fans of the OI, who are interested in the OI, or even um, who know a little bit about Egyptology knows that uh, Robert has been working on magic his whole career um, since his dissertation, which uh, the published book you can see on the screen and the translations of those magical handbooks that he uh, participated in for this uh, major edition, uh, a new updated edition. And the way that um, I sort of got involved is, is, you know, Robert had identified this papyrus uh, uh, many years ago in the Michigan collection as a magical papyrus and uh, has been intending to work on it. Um, and of course, 
teaching classes and other things intervene. And um, there was a time where he was uh, mentioning picking it back up to work on it and I offered to help and uh, he said, yeah, let's, let's work on it together. So um, we started working on it and you know, some of the first things that we had to do, for example, was just realign the pieces. So um, if you go online and look at the Michigan collection online, you'll see the image on the left where the papyrus fragments on the right aren't aligned with the correct lines. Uh, and so uh, when I first started looking at this, I was not having a lot of luck making sense out of it um, until we were able to realign those fragments so that the, the demotic lines lined up in the correct way. And then we made some pretty quick progress. And um, from my perspective, it's been really um, interesting and exciting to work on um, something like this, but also something that now is, is garnering so much attention. I first found this papyrus uh, in the collection of the University of Michigan's library in the 1980s. But I, I received a photograph, but it was only a black and white photograph, which was the only access I had to the papyrus. I wasn't able to go up to Michigan and study it in person for any extended period of time. So for years, I was looking at it on a grainy black and white picture. This was in the 80s before I had access to any kind of computer or any ability to blow up the picture to see it in closer detail, which uh, trying to work at this when, the, uh, when you can't see the color contrast and all you can do is hold a, a, a magnifying glass over the text and hope to see something uh, is not very effective. So it was really, really tough going, especially where the ink is, is particularly faded in many places. So the technological improvements now of being able to work with a color photograph with our new computer programs where we can actually, with Adobe Photoshop, blow things up where you can get into a, on a tight examination of tiny little portions of words has really, really improved and things that looked opaque and almost invisible have now popped into life and we've got some coherence that actually gives explanation for the text. So it, the, one of the reasons for the long delay in putting all of this together was access and just what kind of technological skills we had available. You know, I think, as I was saying earlier, we have this tendency to romanticize the past and think of people as different than we are, but you read the text of the spell and you can see you know that people want the same things um, and they they are driven by the same kinds of things and the base uh, deeper emotions and uh, your work really shows you know it really proves how connected to the past that we are emotional impacts are the same uh, basic desires are the same our techniques might be very different uh, although this kinds of ma this kind of magic is still practiced today in our own society in the United States as well as in Egypt, uh, folk magic is really quite popular. We don't have it done now by priests officially on duty. Uh, at least they probably wouldn't uh, do that openly. But the underlying motives are pretty much the same. One last thing is the imagery itself is really quite striking by way of comparison with our own notions of love, infatuation, because we've simply replaced Anubis with Cupid. Very cool. Do, do you, was that a, um, like a 
direct evolution where Anubis and the bow existed before and then the Romans appropriated it and made it into their own symbol, do you think? You want to touch that for? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess what I would say right now is um, that's something that we want to look into further. Um, is there a direct connection in the way that your question implies? Um, I think that um, it remains to be seen. I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical about that. Um, but uh, certainly the imagery is strikingly similar. And um, trying to uncover if or what type of direct connections there are there, um, that's something that we really want to do when we um, sort of get into our uh, publishing our next article on, on all the a full edition of this, a full study of this papyrus. Well, as a Valentine's birthday baby, I think I'm going to get an Anubis uh, <laughs> bow and arrow statue for my, for my next birthday. I'm going to put that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, guys, for talking. I mean, this is really phenomenal, fantastic, uh, interesting work. And congratulations on all the uh, attention it's been deservedly getting. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve.